This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Um, <clears throat> just again as another announcement, or I guess if, if you don't know me, my name is Zach Lutz. I'm pastor here. It's good to be uh, with you all. Our children's ministry is, is closed this morning for four to seven-year-olds. Um, and there are some coloring pages uh, that, are, that are roughly tie to our passage, uh, covering 1 Samuel in the back, uh, if you'd like to grab some of those. Um, also, feel free, uh, the, the two rooms back there uh, are open uh, sh- should you need it. As a, as a parent of a three-year-old, I, I understand that sometimes, um, you know, you need some alone face-to-face time with your child. <clears throat> of course, your children are always um, welcome here. I'll be talking about that today. Um, in our sermon, we love having them worship with us. Um, we don't send them away because they're distracting to us. Um, we send them away, uh, hopefully, that they might have um, an experience to hear the story of God's great deliverance uh, in an age-appropriate way, uh, that they might have a way to interact on their own. So um, I've, I've, I've got a question for us, and that's what we do when life goes from bad to worse. Uh, I think that we've all had this experience. Sometimes it's as simple as a day, you know. Uh, so you spill the coffee, you can't find the keys, you're late to work, things don't go well at school, your friends are having a fight, or whatever else. Um, but it starts to change kind of uh, in tone and seriousness when it becomes, you know, a week, a month, a decade, when things go from bad to worse over and over and over again. And I think maybe it's especially hard for us Christians because uh, we have this idea built in where we say, yes, um, we know that there's nuance here, but that um, our faith to Jesus uh, results in some blessing, right? Like we should see the fruits of this blessing. We should be able to taste them. We should be able to know it. And in the moment of things going from bad to worse, it doesn't feel like we can taste it. It feels very far off. What are Christians supposed to do? What does faithfulness look like? Well, our sermon series, we are in 1 Samuel, and we're going to be looking at uh, the Hebrews today, and they're actually going to give us a, a good example of what faith looks like when things go from bad to worse. Now, the Hebrews don't always uh, exemplify for us good examples. Um, often they're showing us negative examples <laughs> that we're not supposed to follow, um, but that we see ourselves in nonetheless. But today, uh, they show us a good example of how to react when things go from bad to worse. So if you would, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word which comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the, the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound, 
that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hands of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. And then he returned to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So today we're looking at the people of Israel, the Hebrews, um, and how they chose to respond in faith when things went from bad to worse. Now, their response seems uh, somewhat simple, because there's two areas that we're going to focus on today. When things went from bad to worse for the Hebrews, they responded by praying and by remembering God's faithfulness. Now, I know uh, maybe what you're thinking, man, those are really simple. You're saying, Pastor, that when uh, things go from bad to worse, I got to remember to pray and I got to remember to remember. Um, And yes, That is true. But I hope that today, by looking at this passage, we're able to unravel a little bit what prayer looks like specifically when things are going from bad to worse. That we might be able to look specifically at what it looks like to remember God's faithfulness. So when things go from bad to worse, we need to remember to pray, and we need to remember God's faithfulness. So first is prayer. Uh, There's a new-ish, not, not really new, just kind of reincarnated fad uh, in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, of sending out good vibes into the universe. You guys have seen this on Facebook and other things, right? Um, sending out good vibes. And it's positive thinking, willing, manifesting ourselves. Um, and to a degree, we can admit that this positive thinking um, does create um, a life satisfaction that pessimists probably don't enjoy, right? There might be some marginal benefit to positive thinking. It's not wholly bad. But in the face of things going from bad to worse, sending out good vibes seems insufficient. So as an example, uh, let's say uh, with the war in Ukraine, to send out good vibes to the people of Ukraine feels a little bit patronizing, right? It's not quite sufficient. Now, I've got to be honest, prayer can feel just as patronizing, right? I'm praying for you, praying for you. I think prayer can feel just as patronizing as sending out good vibes because often we view prayer as just the same as sending out good vibes. We think we're crying out to an impersonal universe, distant, generally unresponsive, just hoping that our best wishes will be heard and that something or someone who may or may not be willing to intercede for us will on our behalf. But true Christian prayer should be different. It's marked by different things. It isn't marked by simply wishfulness to something impersonal, but an honest request to a personal being. And we can see this in what the Hebrews do. But to understand this fully, we actually have to remember what we talked about last week with Kyle. We have to remember um, what the Philistines were doing, or what the, what the Hebrews were doing with the Philistines at the time. So if you'll remember last week, uh, and in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, what happens is this. Um, the Hebrews fight against the Philistines, right? And then they lose. They lose 4,000. And they go, you know what? 
We forgot about God. We should, we should bring God with us. We'll bring the Ark of the Covenant with us, which is this box, symbol of God's presence. You know, and they bring God with them, and they say, if we, as long as we've got God with us, we're carrying him with us, he's going to fight for us. And they go to battle again, and they lose 30,000 men. Things went from bad to worse. Now they're about to get even worse. <laughs> because now they've kind of realized, man, we've done something wrong. And now they're trying to turn back to the Lord, and the Philistines are approaching again. See, the Hebrews thought that maybe with God contained in the ark, um, that they, if they just had a good enough faith with the fact that God was there with them, um, that their deepest desires would come true, that their prayers would be answered, that they would be heard because God was with them. They hadn't forgotten about him this time. They've at least mentioned him passing in a prayer. They've cried out to the universe. And at first, this seems to work. If you go back to those passages in, in, in 4 and 5, because the Philistines are intimidated. They hear that a God has come into their camp. But then the Philistines actually gather together and they send out their own good vibes among their crowd, you know, and they rally their troops and it says they're given an impassioned speech. And that impassioned speech results in them dominating the Hebrews. I guess the Philistines' good vibes were gooder. Maybe only people with the best vibes can actually manifest what they want. Did God's people not send out the right vibes? What happened? Why didn't God fight for them? Well, as Kyle told us, they presumed upon their relationship. They weren't, they weren't interested in their relationship with God. They wanted um, what God had to offer. They thought that they could use God. They could use the relationship for their own ends, the building of their own kingdoms. And they presumed that God wanted the same things that they wanted. In our passage today, when things go from bad to worse and the Philistines are approaching again, the question for us as the reader that's gone from four, five, six, and now to chapter seven is have they learned anything? Are they going to change with their, their, their practice, their relationship with God? It seems that they're trying to make amends, right? In our passage, in verse four, they put away their gods and they serve the Lord only. And in verses five through six, they confess their sins in prayer. They worship the Lord and they sit under Samuel's judging or preaching. Uh, and Samuel's there teaching them what it looks like to have a right relationship with God. But right then, the Philistines are coming. The Philistines are like, they're all gathered in one place. Now's our chance. You can almost feel the PTSD. They've just lost 34,000 men. And now the same army is there. And the last time that they were with God, he didn't do much to help them. Things are going from bad to worse. And they're wondering, will he do it now? What do they do? It says that they cry out in prayer. Their prayer, instead of being presumptive, assuming that God wants the same things that they want, is a cry out, it's a humble, if desperate request to a personal God to provide deliverance that only he can provide. Because as far as they can see in this moment, only loss awaits. Only loss awaits. So the Israelites told Samuel to keep on interceding, to keep praying or to keep crying out for them. They wanted him to keep crying out to God that they might be delivered in the way that only he could have done. They had presumed in their relationship, but now they understood their relationship better. I wonder if we presume in the same way upon our relationship with God. And I think we do this when we treat prayer as a simply a cry out to the universe uh, that God desires the same things that we want necessarily one-to-one. -one. When our prayer is just one aspect of our positive thinking, a place where we can tell ourselves a positive story. 
You know, there's been um, a recent TV drama that seeks to show uh, the, the kind of un unfolding in history events of this company, WeWork. Um, I, I don't know if you know about this company, it's called a collaborative workspace. Um, and uh, the CEO, uh, Adam Newman, uh, is portrayed in this, in this series, and they're kind of telling the story. Now, I'm not really sure how accurate the story was, but I know in multiple times throughout there, um, his wife, Rebecca, uh, kind of grabs him by the face and says that he needs to manifest himself. He needs to manifest his dreams. And it gives him the sort of ability to take risks where he's doubting whether or not his charisma can carry him through. And so the idea basically encourages Adam to think of himself as able to create his own destiny, as if he was a little bit divine. And if not divine, he was at least able to try as hard as he could for what he wanted. And if it happened, it meant that it was at least divinely authorized. But the unfolding of the WeWork story is that Adam Newman actually was able to manifest some of his own reality. He's walked away with millions. But he did it at the hands of his employees, deceiving investors, and exploiting others. Manifesting himself may have been perfectly legal, but we sense that there's something wrong about exploiting others for our own self-manifestation. When we believe ourselves to be divine, to be God, or at least we presume upon our relationship that God wants the exact same things that we want in the timeline that we want them, our sin goes unchecked. We have divine authorization. It's destiny. True Christian prayer demands that we stop believing ourselves to be God. Recognize that we are not divine and there's only one who is. Our prayers have to stop being cries out to an impersonal universe and a cry out to a personal God who has a relationship with you. What does this kind of prayer look like? Well, if we look at what the Hebrews did, what they started with, I think, is very important. They started with, we have sinned against God. <laughs> they confessed their sin. I think the best way for us uh, to shape our prayers and to remind ourselves of our correct place within the only God of the universe is to start with confession of our sin. When things are going from bad to worse and your prayers start, you confess that you're saying, not because you've necessarily deserved what's happening in the worst, but it's because it's, it's recognizing the correct relationship between you and the only divine one that can provide deliverance. It will shape your prayers in the best ways possible. It will refocus your prayers on the fact that when you are confessing your sin, uh, you're not confessing it to pay for it. It's already been paid for, right? You're, uh, you're confessing that Jesus has paid for it. So, you are actually already acknowledging the fact that God loved you enough to forgive you of a worse debt. So whatever you're facing in your life, you can start with the thing and say, God, you have already forgiven me and loved me so much. I may not have categories to understand what this is, but I, hope that you, I, I ask that you would help me understand it. But it will also in turn shape for how you boldly ask for deliverance from those worst things in your life. You won't be afraid of asking for what you most desperately desire because you know the forgiveness that you've already received. You boldly ask because he clearly loves you, but you also humbly ask because you know that his plan is good and right. His plan for you is good and right. Even if moment by moment it doesn't feel good and right. When Jesus went to the cross for his disciples, it did not feel good and right. They did not understand the suffering that Jesus was walking into. 
We're not paying for anybody's sins, but we cannot understand in God's um, ordering of events where our present sufferings are playing into his plan. Starting with confession allows us to correctly reorient ourselves before God. He's divine, and we are not. I wonder if our prayer, if our humble request, tends to show the kind of dependence and rest in the relationship. Because, you know, what's fascinating about the Hebrews is the Hebrews had no idea if they would be delivered or not, right? They tell Samuel to keep crying out and keep offering sacrifices because they need to go fight a battle. And they know full well that that battle might end with another loss of 30,000 people. But they do it because they know that this relationship, the great acts of deliverance they've already seen from their God, must be cared for. And they can trust him with the outcome, whether it is miraculous deliverance or whether it is a loss of 30,000 more. He is good and he is for them. When things go from bad to worse, we have to uh, remember to pray. But there's another thing that we learn from the Hebrews in this passage, and that's remembering the Lord's past faithfulness. There's something powerful about uh, the stories that we tell in our, in our memories, right? And I, I wonder if you guys have ever heard uh, the story of the Billy Goat Curse of the Chicago Cubs. I'm sure many of you have. It goes like this. In 1945, a tavern owner, William Cyanus, brought his pet goat to Game 4 of the World Series. Now, his pet goat, Murphy, and he uh, were causing a disturbance and so were asked to leave, and he was irate. And as he was leaving, Cyanus declares, them Cubs ain't going to win no more. And from 1945, they did not win another uh, National League or World Series pennant for 71 years until they won in 2016. Now, as interesting and fascinating as the story is on its own, I actually want to focus on a different aspect, which is when I lived in Chicago, um, I heard this story numerous times from numerous people, transplant from Kansas, living in Chicago. None of the people that told me were old enough to be alive in 1945 to have heard this story for themselves. It was a story that they were handed down time and time again to make sense of their present losses. Now, maybe the story's a little silly, but I think that the point remains that we need a story that helps us make sense of our present losses. A story that we tell ourselves and we hand down from generation to generation. The Hebrews do a similar thing. Um, way back in chapter 4, when they kind of started this back and forth with the Philistines in, in this section of, of 1 Samuel, um, they waged a war presuming upon God's actions, and they had assembled themselves at a place called Ebenezer, which means stone of help. But their presumption upon God and lack of personal relationship caused them to be routed. You know, they lost the 34,000 people. Now, when their relationship had changed and uh, dependence rightly oriented, they confessed their sins um, and prayed to God boldly to ask for what they wanted. Um, they saw God's deliverance in, in a miraculous way God had provided for them. And what Samuel does after is he sets up a new Ebenezer, a new stone of remembrance that they could look at to help them through any future problems. In future times of trouble, they would be able to look back and see the stone and remember the story of God's faithfulness. And so continue in diligence with their personal relationship of prayer. Even when things were getting worse, I wonder what stories we tell ourselves about God's past faithfulness to help us make sense of present losses. Do we tell ourselves stories of God's standoffishness, his coldness and indifference? 
Do we tell ourselves the story that we are really the God of our own lives, that we have the authority to deliver ourselves from every problem that presents, that we can pull through on our own, manifest our own destinies? Or do we tell ourselves the story of God's great deliverance? This is one of the main reasons that we as Christians believe that God commands us to come to church to worship every week. God commands us to worship him, to sing the story, to hear the story preached, to confess the story, to taste the story upon our lips and be reminded of who God is to you. This is precisely why we like our children to stay in portions of our service and today in the whole service. It's because we want them to experience this story along with everyone else in this room, with every member that we may all look at the rock of deliverance that has been given to us, remember that great act of deliverance that has happened, and together, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, be shaped into the people of God, just as the Old Testament people of God, in times of trouble, would look back at that rock of deliverance and remember how the Lord delivered them miraculously. We don't just do this corporately, though. We do this as families and individuals. And I think we all know that the stories our families tell can be powerful. They can shape siblings and uh, relationships inside of your family. This person would do that because they always do that. Um, In fact, uh, we had a marriage conference uh, in January uh, that some of you participated in. And part of that section was uh, the the use of this word always uh, in our fights. Because the word always in in our marriages can be used in positive ways. Yeah, you know, this he or she always thinks of me uh, in this little way, and it makes me feel so cared for. Uh, but it can always also be used negatively. This person always does that. They always assume this or that about me. They always ch- blame me for things that are outside of my control. The stories that we tell ourselves can shape us in powerful ways. And this also happens individually. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not talking about just positive self-talk. Again, there may be marginal benefits to this. But I'm talking about hearing a story declared to you about how much God loves you. You see, the self-talk that we have about ourselves needs to be shaped by the great acts of deliverance that have happened in Scripture. We need Ebenezer's in our own life to remind us how God has delivered us. We need to hear him declare that we are not worthless, that we are worth so much, in fact, that he would send his own son to redeem us. We don't just declare to ourselves that nobody can judge us so we can do whatever we want. We hear scripture declare to us that God will judge us, but Christ stands in the way and teaches us the way that we should act to be sons and daughters of the living God. You need to hear this story. And this is why Christians do church, and this is why we do devotional times in our families and personally. Now, I've got to be the first to admit, I do a pretty awful job at this, not only at consistency in my own personal devotional life, which I always wish is better, but also with how I treat it. I tend to go to Scripture, and I try to, I want to learn something new. I want to understand something new. I want, um, you know, and this is not wrong to go to Scripture to be able to do this. But I often stop short of telling myself, again, the bigger story of deliverance, of applying it to my life of what God has done for me, of using that to be able to set up Ebenezer's in my own mind that tell me the story of God's past deliverance that would allow me to uh, persevere through present losses. We need to hear the story declared to us. We need to look back on our lives and see 
That was God who delivered us. It was God who did that. And we don't just need to do this individually or in our families. We need to do this as a church. We can learn from these stories that we set up for ourselves, not just for ourselves, for our families, and for the church. We can also learn from church history, how God has continuously protected and delivered his church. When things go from bad to worse, we not only need to know how to pray, but we also need to remember God's past faithfulness. Hear the story declared again and again. But you know, when things went from bad to worse for the Hebrews, uh, they had to learn to pray and they had to learn to remember. Um, Now, they were given these instructions to pray and to remember God's faithfulness in the law of Moses, right? So they'd, they'd already received this. This is, this is old news for them. And yet they still needed someone to teach them again, uh, someone to tell them again, to call them to faithfulness. Uh, they needed someone to set up stones of remembrance. And this person for them was Samuel. Samuel did it. Samuel told them that they needed to repent. Samuel interceded for them. He went around preaching. Samuel set up the stone and pointed them back to, them, back, back to it, telling them the story again and again of God's deliverance. We need someone pointing us back to prayer, back to remembrance of God's faithfulness. We need a helper. The Apostle Peter knew that he needed to have a relationship with God that allowed him dependence upon God's plan even when things went from bad to worse. But there's a story about Peter and Jesus, and I wonder if you remember it. Um, Jesus kind of comes up to Peter and he says, you know, Peter, uh, there's an an enemy that is coming, that is encroaching upon you, and he's asking to sift you like wheat. Maybe it's very much like the Philistines. They're getting closer, you know? And, you know, Peter's response is kind of like, come on, we can take him, you know? He was fully uh, convinced that he was able to manifest what he believed should happen. Lord, I will follow you to prison and to death, he says. But we all know that when Peter was given the opportunity to follow, follow Jesus into prison and death, He denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. But the fascinating thing really about this conversation between Jesus and Peter is that Jesus tells Peter, Satan has asked it to sift you like wheat. But he has another phrase in there. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith will persevere. I have prayed, interceded, cried out that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Jesus also prays for you and he prays for me. He intercedes and he cries out for you and for me. And when things are going from bad to worse, he sees and he knows. And he is at the right hand of the Father interceding on your behalf. And he doesn't ever stop. Romans 8 says that even right now he is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. He sees and he cries out that you would have the strength that you need to stand up underneath it, or that you would have a path to escape, or that you'd have deliverance by God's thunder. And he didn't stop crying out for you even when things look really, really dire. Even at death's doorstep, he does not cease crying out. In fact, he intercedes for you even there. When you're bad from worse, looks like facing death itself, we know that Jesus has gone even there and will not abandon us. He has interceded and made a sacrifice so much better than the sacrifices that Samuel was making. So much pure, so much more effective. Jesus, as the better Samuel, 
he not only cries out for us, but he also institutes um, new Ebenezer's, uh, things to point us back to this great act of deliverance, things to remind us of the great things that he's accomplished. And that whenever we are going from bad to worse, uh, we could return to these great Ebenezer's and again hear the story proclaimed to us. And one of the ways that he does that is with a table, which we're going to celebrate today. He gave us on this table bread and wine and elements, and he said to do this in remembrance of me. Remember that great act of deliverance that I have pursued you from. This is a great Ebenezer to point you back to me. Remember who I am to you. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering his name, and I'll give it to you. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after eating, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. Each time we eat and drink at this table, we proclaim this great act of deliverance until the Lord comes again. And we point each other back, and by the power of his spirit, we taste this story upon our lips that God has redeemed us, delivered us. Now, just like the Ebenezer Stone in 1 Samuel, uh, this sign is meant for those uh, who tell the story and who are part of the household of faith. If you proclaim Jesus as your Lord and King, and if you've been baptized into his name, then this table is for you. Uh, if that's not true of you, uh, if you're not sure that Jesus accomplished what he did, if you've, if you've not been baptized, if you're not a member of this household of faith, then I'd ask you to refrain from partaking of this table. Uh, to talk with me or Kyle or one of, uh, one of our other church leaders, we'd be happy to explore this more with you. I invite you in to this household of faith in its fullness. But I ask you to still heed the proclamation and remember. Remember what Jesus said that he did on your behalf, as we all do together. Now in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come down the center aisle, and there's a serving station on my right and my left. Uh, the left has the gluten-free option, if you require that, so you're going to want to go that way, which I guess is your right. Uh, and then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. So if you would, please pray with me. Jesus, our King, you have given us not just an Ebenezer stone to remember small acts of deliverance, but you are the greatest act of deliverance. You stand before us this morning, inviting us to your table to say, taste and see. Taste and see that my body was broken for you and my blood was shed for you. Lord, I pray that we all might know this by the power of your spirit, that it might strengthen and edify our faith, that we might be sent uh, by your power um, to be agents of your kingdom, that we might go forth this day um, having heard the story declared again to us, and that we might declare it to others, to ourselves, to our families, to our neighbors, to our community, and to the world. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.